Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, Keller and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today we take a look at last year in Southern Labor and take a look at what bosses were up to in 2023 as well. We are talking to Alabama State University Professor Darren Moten, as well as uh, breaking down some of the new news at Mercedes with the UAW and KIV's attacks on her constituents. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and we will open the line in the second half of the show, Overtime. Uh, If you'd like, you can get that phone number ready. The phone number is 844-899-8857. That is 844-899-TVLR. In the meantime, you can head to our Facebook or YouTube channels and hang out with us in the chat. We are... um, uh, we're everywhere you find any anything online. Uh, you just have to search for the Valley Labor Report. Uh, so you can do that if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio. Just a reminder: your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of uh, funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining donor to the program, uh, you can go to tvlr.fm/donate and make a one-time or recurring donation. You can also go to our merch store and buy our shirts tvlr.fm slash store and you can become a patron if you're more comfortable with that layout patreon.com slash the valley labor report uh and if you're a member of a union then please do think about getting your local or international union to sponsor the show we could not do it without our union sponsors And let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. As most of you know, we are not media professionals, just a few diehard unionists who believe that Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you're a loyal fan, first-time listener, appreciate you spending some time with us. 
Absolutely. Uh, and thank you to the uh, getting close to 20 people watching us on YouTube now, hanging out with us in the chat. Uh, same to the folks watching us over on Facebook. Uh, I saw that uh, Infinite Content, you are mourning the loss of your grandmother on New Year's Day. Uh, my um, thoughts go out to you uh, on that. That's a very difficult thing to have to deal with around the holidays. Uh, ben, good morning. Brandon, good morning. John Valenzuela asks us to talk about the national letter carrier contract uh, that is in negotiation with the Postal Service right now. Um, that is something that we want to do, uh, but Absolutely, yeah. I do not know anything about it other than it is apparently happening <laughs> right now yeah but uh, my, we do need to get a guest on we, for we, that, we for need sure. to get a guest on and i need to do some more reading about that so john if you have uh any um if you've got any articles that you would recommend uh drop them in the chat and if you have any recommendations for guests drop that in the chat and we will take that into consideration i do know that the rural carriers uh are having a lot of um you know, controversy in their union as uh, some of the members are unhappy with the current leadership and are even going so far as to circulate a decertification petition. Um, wow. So, yeah. Uh, Jada says, good morning. Good morning. All right. So uh, I told you that we've got uh, we've got some thoughts on the year in review for Southern Labor. Uh, we are substituting our last week in Southern Labor segment for this, a year in review. Uh, and then we will catch back up next week with a two week roundup for um, uh, Southern Labor. Um, so first off, I wanted to bring you just some just some top line numbers that I, I thought were pretty neat. Uh, so every week, uh, you know, for last week in Southern Labor, we pull all of the NLRB filings from the last week. Uh, and so what we did this time is uh, we pulled all the NLRB filings from 2023, the whole year uh, for the South. And I did some... Um, I broke out my coding hat uh, that I learned. I learned a little bit of coding in college. Not much, but a little bit. Um, and I pulled some numbers for you. So in the South in 2023, the South we define as, uh, you know, the Southern United States and, um, uh, and then the colonies, we uh, had 547 petitions filed in 2023 there were 492 closed petitions closed cases at the nlrb um including 2022 holdovers so that was 416 closed cases from 2023 and 76 from 2022 uh, that were closed in 23 for a total of 492 there were 219 election wins uh with 179 being from 2023 filings and 40 from 2022 filings uh for a total of 219 and now that might sound like a a pretty low win percentage but it is worth remembering that uh not all NLRB cases are um uh you know they're not all taken to a conclusion so a lot of those 492 filings or uh, 492 closed cases uh, were withdrawn or otherwise closed uh, without ultimately a win or a loss um, so with those 219 union election wins in 2023 came 15,745 new union workers in the southern United States and the American colonies. 
that of course does not take into account uh, public sector workers, new public sector union members, or uh, union members who uh, were organized through a voluntary recognition process of which, uh, you know, they're... Um, the voluntary recognition is not going to be as much as the NLRB elections, uh, but it's still not insubstantial. And uh, particularly, uh, you know, the missing uh, missing piece of data is the um, public sector union members, because uh, public sector union members make up a, a substantial portion of the labor movement. And so, um, you know, not having those numbers is definitely uh, definitely detrimental to having the full picture. But, you know, there, uh, that's what we have. Uh, the state with the most union elections was Texas with 66. Alabama only had 10 union elections. The biggest NLRB wins were, uh, in order, Duke University's uh, win, 2,500 workers uh, immediately um, going into a union workplace at uh, Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. That uh, election was won by Workers United. Another win by Workers United happened at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, among graduate workers, obviously, with 1,722 uh, new union members. Uh, Bluebird was a bright spot in the South with a manufacturing win by the United Steelworkers in Fort Valley, Georgia, 1,350 in that union election. The Teamsters won a large uh, election at DHL in Erlanger, Kentucky, with 900 logistics workers being organized there. Uh, the National Nurses United organized 598 hospital workers at University Medical Center in Louisiana, and the SEIU organized uh, 475 ramp workers at Jetstream Ground Services in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, so ramp, ramp workers like at airports. Uh, what that was so those are some top line numbers um there that, that i thought were pretty interesting and then yeah and uh, and i'll just chime in real yeah. quick on that part to say that um i would argue that withdrawals are kind of a loss um that's true i mean obviously it's not the same as an election loss um but ultimately it's a loss for the movement right if workers right. um got to the point where they filed a petition and for whatever reason it was withdrawn Obviously, they didn't win their union, right. right? So that's that that is notable, I think, and and it'd be interesting to know. Uh, and maybe there are very smart researchers out here doing this. I don't know if there are, uh, but it'd be interesting to know kind of the reasonings behind the withdrawals. Are there trends to the withdrawals, right? Because sometimes maybe it's they backed out. Uh, maybe there was retaliation, uh, etc. So, and there were some cases that that we have covered uh, where an NLRB election withdrawal. Um, the 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 reason for that was that voluntary recognition was granted. Right. So Correct. it's not always it's not always a loss. Right. Um, are so, are sometimes they change to a different union that they want to represent them. Right. Yep, so yep, yeah yep. yeah it's it's complicated. But just wanted to make that note. So. Um, then you know, taking a look at, at some of the bigger stories individually, after you know we break down those top, after we broke down those top line numbers, you know, I, I mean, I think the UAW obviously has to be the biggest labor story in the country, uh, and therefore the South in 2023. Um, and you know, it's really amazing as I was kind of thinking about what to say for the year in review. It is amazing thinking about how far the UAW came in 2023 because it's easy to forget, like Sean Fain has not even been president for a year yet 
of the UAW. Right. He won the he won the presidential election for the UAW back in uh what was it June? Was it as late as June? It was sometime in 2023. And so that in and of itself was huge, right? A, a brand new slate of elected officials, the uh, the Members United slate, uh, sponsored by Unite All Workers for Democracy, winning a clean sweep in every single uh, seat that they challenged. I mean, that's huge. Ousting the administrative uh, administration caucus, you know, from... It's impenetrable force fortress uh, atop the UA, uh, the UAW. Uh, that's I mean that in and of itself is huge. And then immediately turning around and making use of the apparatus of the UAW to wage an all-out struggle against the big three automakers in the United States and uh, coming back with record wins all in the same year. I mean that's just. Uh, really, really amazing. You know, uh, some temporary workers in particular nearly doubling their wages on ratification immediately. And uh, those same temporary workers will see a 160% wage increase over the life of the contract. Um, so, you know, really, really. And, and so, so, okay, winning the election, huge story. Winning record contracts at the big three, huge story. But then they're still not done because they round out the year with the most ambitious organizing campaign since the CIO's Operation Dixie in the 1940s. I mean, just, uh, you know, they're not stopping. They're not resting on their laurels. And that is hugely significant, hugely significant. Uh, and so while more of the big three operations are outside of the uh, outside of the South, you know, thinking about those record wins, um, there are still several facilities inside of the region, including Louisville's Ford uh, truck plant, which uh, produced 50 percent of Ford's profits uh, from the year before. So if this organizing campaign goes well, though, the UIW will significantly increase its influence in the South, uh, as that's where the non-union automakers have set up shop. And so, um, you know, the. 2024 is going to be the year that, that we kind of see how this organizing campaign really plays out. So far, only um, only two uh, plants have announced that they have reached 30% union authorization cards signed. The Fremont plant in Tesla has announced they have gone public with their organizing committee. They haven't hit 30% yet, I don't think. But uh, but I mean just. Easily the biggest story and, and the most significant in labor uh, in the country and in the South, the UAW, um, and uh, hoping to see more from that in 2024. In any other year, though, uh, the Teamsters at UPS would have been the biggest uh, would have been the biggest story um, because that involved more than 300,000 workers nationwide. Uh, the Teamsters were able to extract significant gains without a strike because the strike was credible. Uh, so the minimum wage at UPS is now set at $21 an hour, which is going to be a particular boon for workers in the South, uh, of which there are many at UPS, with a lower cost of living, uh, where $21 an hour can go a long way. You know, $21 an hour in a place like um, 
in a place like uh, you know rural Alabama goes a lot farther than it does in, in California and and you know that's part, that that was part of some of the uh, controversy uh, with the contract ratification but the contract ratification was was uh, went through overwhelmingly uh, some eighty percent of uh, teamster members who voted uh, voted in favor of the contract so it's overwhelmingly supported and some very big gains uh, for the Teamsters at UPS. And there is still energy, you know, even on kind of the more oppositional side, there's a lot of rank and file energy that want to keep pushing and, and get more from UPS. And I think that's promising to see that sort of energy within the Teamsters. And, you know, it, it's hard to keep people all on the same page uh, and you're not going to do that long term all mm -hmm. the time. But... Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's like a groundswell of energy within the Teamsters as well. Yeah. So that's really promising. They haven't unfortunately done anything as splashy as the UAW after their big conflict, but they have been quietly organizing DHL workers. I mean, it was the fourth, the third largest union win in the South at DHL by the Teamsters. Uh, so, you know, they haven't they haven't exactly been sitting on their laurels either. They've been quietly organizing DHL workers. They've been loudly striking the first and only unionized Amazon delivery service provider. And they rounded out the year gearing up for a potential strike at Anheuser-Busch in their unionized facilities with 5,000 Teamsters uh, brewing America's beer. So, you know, uh, um... Like I said, not anything as splashy as the UAW, uh, but they certainly haven't uh, just been sitting around either at the Teamsters. Um, Starbucks Workers United obviously continued to notch wins. Dozens and dozens of new stores in the South in 2023, escalating their strike actions. Still no movement on a contract, which is unfortunate, but um, that is, uh, th that's got to be another big story of 2023. Grad workers are another one, and the grad workers... Grad workers and Starbucks Workers United, I think there's there's kind of a similar dynamic there that I think will be beneficial for the labor movement, not only like as such, you know, it is beneficial for the labor movement as such that grad workers are unionized at their universities, right? That's just that is just good in and of itself. But the the what I think will be more beneficial and we'll see the fruits of these seeds later on, is that all of these graduate workers are learning to be unionists in college, and they will take that with them wherever they go to work. Right. Right? So all of these, like all of these graduate workers, virtually none of them are going to stay on campus. The vast, vast majority of them are going to go work in industry somewhere. Are they going to be a union staffer? Are they going to go organize their office? Are they going to be inspired by the union movement and industrialize and go work at uh, UPS or Amazon or a car factory or something like this, right? There are going to, and, and Starbucks, I think, is going to be a very similar dynamic, right? There's, uh, because most people are not going to work at Starbucks for their entire life, but they're going to be able to take what they learned through the union campaign wherever they go, wherever they end up. So I think... In 10 to 20 years, Lord willing, what we will see is that the most impactful thing from the trend of grad worker organization and organization at Starbucks is not going to be per se those organizations, but worker leaders being developed and going and doing bigger and better things in other workplaces and in other unions. 
Uh, the United Mine Workers ended its uh, nearly two-year-long struggle uh, strike against Warrior Met early in 2023, but the struggle is not over. Workers still don't have a contract. The company is stonewalling at the bargaining table, and Warrior Met is refusing to let 41 strike leaders back on the job. Um, so that is, a uh, uh, you know, coming back down to earth, that's a very uh, sobering story. Um Getting uh, a, a, some more lighter news, though, newsrooms are continuing to organize, including right here in the South. Uh, just recently, uh, journalists in Mississippi began bargaining for their first contract after receiving voluntary recognition in the summer at uh, Deep South uh, Deep South News Today over in Mississippi. Um, and uh, uh, some other outlets. I think there were multiple outlets in Mississippi that just unionized. So going to be seeing more of that. Child labor obviously dominated the headlines in 2023, uh, both in that, you know, it's happening, right? It's happening a lot and it's happening more than it used to, uh, but also in that Republicans in state houses across the country are seeing this increase in child labor and they're thinking, wow, uh, that's cool. I want more of that and proposing laws to loosen regulations around child labor, uh, including in the South. So, uh, very uh, negative trends on both of those fronts, on the facts that we are seeing more and more illegal child labor and that the Republican response to that is, let's just not make it illegal. Let's just legalize it, right? Very bad, uh, very negative trends there. And then, um, you know, rounding out the, the last uh, big story that I had, and then Adam, I don't know if there was anything else that, that you wanted to mention before we went to a break, but um, Israel and Palestine. Uh, politically, that was definitely the biggest uh, story for the last quarter of 2023. Um, and labor has generally been very quiet on this front. Um, but even that is a break from their incredibly pro-vocal or incredibly vocally pro-Israel past. You know, in the past, in the past decades, um, yeah, unions were were very, very vocally supportive of Israel and whatever Israel wants to do to the Palestinians. Um, and so that's changed. Uh, the, the stance generally among, among the labor movement has just been quiet. So that, that is a shift. But uh, there are uh, leaders and unions leading the way in calls for justice in the region. Uh, and uh, some of the usual progressive unions you saw, like UE and the APWU. Uh, but the UAW rounded out the list of big names calling for, for a permanent ceasefire. And that is a ver that's very significant. Um, the issue continues to be a contentious one, but the direction is clear. Um, the direction is clearly moving away from support of Israel uh, because of Israel's actions. Uh, and Israel is continuing to erode what goodwill it has left. And so that, that's, uh, that's the clear trend uh, as 2023 rounded out. And we're uh, almost certainly going to see that progress in 2024. So in terms of anything, I guess, um, to chime in with, obviously there were a lot of things happening outside the South with labor, with the big Hollywood strikes, for example, um, some of the healthcare strikes uh, out in uh, California as well. Um, a couple of things I wanted to mention, uh, according to the Cornell Labor Action Tracker, there were more strikers than uh, the year before. In fact, mm -hmm. the half million U.S. workers who struck in 2023 doubled the strike number for 2022, which in turn nearly doubled the 2021 number. Uh, so we had more folks on strike. And something else worth pointing out was the popularity of people on strike mm -hmm. and of unions in particular. 
Uh, so both unions and striking workers received uh, record poll numbers this year uh, in terms of public approval. Uh, so that is worth noting that, you know, three out of four Americans are, are supporting people on strike, supporting unions. Uh, nine out of 10 young people, right, people under 30, uh, I believe it was 88 percent support labor, uh, which is huge, which also speaks to what you talked about with like building young leaders and, mm. and new activists coming into the movement. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, let's see. In terms of uh, other things to kind of lift up, uh, I did want to lift up UE, um, not just for taking a stand on on matters of peace and war, but uh, they have had a lot of success, not in the South necessarily, but they've had a lot of success with that grad organizing uh, that you talked about. Uh, they brought in over 20,000 new members Wow! this year. Uh, and that's through seven campus organizing campaigns uh, across the West and, and up North. Uh, so really, you know, that's very impressive for a union uh, like UE that is not part of the AFL-CIO, does not have necessarily the resources of like mm -hmm. a UAW. Um, so very impressive. Um, and yeah, I, I uh, just, you know, echo your comments there. I think, um, I guess my final reaction would be, it's clear there's a lot of energy uh, including in the South with the labor movement. There's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Um, but those numbers that you shared at the beginning are not like mind blowing. You know what right. I mean? Like uh, our density still is far, far too low. Uh, and we have been losing as a working class and as a labor movement for decades. Uh, so that's, we have quite a ways to go to catch up. Uh, but a lot of yep. a lot of things uh, look positive, um, and it's important that organizing in the workplace in the South continue in a big way. Absolutely. All right. Well, there you go. Those are uh, our reflections uh, on uh, last year in Southern labor. Take it for what you will. Um, but uh, but as we were covering labor for the entirety of 2023, figured it'd be worth uh, sharing those thoughts with you. We're going to go ahead and head to a break. We're going to be right back, and we're going to talk to Darren Moten, uh, history professor from Alabama State University. Stay yeah, tuned. really looking forward to that. Thanks, y'all. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Pure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit coveralabama.org. 
The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Alabama's only union talk radio program. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. Uh, If you've got anything to add, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube and drop your comments in the chat. We're going to open up the phone lines in the second half of the show at 11 a.m. in overtime. 
Now we have on the line uh, Darren Moten. He is a professor at Alabama State University, a professor in history. Really excited to talk to him. Uh, professor Moten, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your time. Uh, and I just wanted to start, if you could kind of introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do at Alabama State, but also what you do in the labor movement, because I know you've been a long time uh, labor movement leader here in Alabama. So uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Um, as you know, it's still mill town, just like Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and so um, I was familiar with uh, the labor movement because my brother worked for U.S. Steel. Um, my dad worked for, um, U uh, well, actually, he worked part of his professional career for Chrysler, the other part of his professional career for Ford, so he was a member of UAW. Um, I am a graduate of a HBCU, Howard University in Washington, D.C. Um, after that, I received graduate degrees um, at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. and the University of Iowa in Iowa City. Um, my um, doctorate degree is in American Studies. I have taught at Alabama State University since 1996. Uh, I currently chair the Department of History and Political Science um, at Alabama State University. Um, and um, I, I am a member of the um, Higher Education Policy and Planning Council for the American Federation of Teachers. It's um, a, like a, a, a we um, advise the elected officers and the um, executive council on higher education issues. There are other uh, policy and planning councils for such as the nurses um, um, or nursing profession, as well as K-12. I am also a Southern Regional uh, Vice President for the Alabama AFL-CIO. Yeah, so you wear a lot of hats, uh, obviously. Uh, oh, and and, and I'm yeah, sorry, I, I, I forgot to mention that I'm also a co-president of the Faculty Staff Alliance at Alabama State University. Uh, we um, received our charter in 1994. Um, we are the only um, higher education affiliate uh, for the American Federation of Teachers in Alabama. Um, as you probably know, AFT is now affiliated with AAUP, um, and, and so, um, I'm happy for that joint affiliation uh, because um, back in the 1960s, A AAUP came to the, to the defense of one of our faculty members who was summarily dismissed um, by the governor, um, Governor John Patterson, for, um, I believe his friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Mrs. King, wow. as well as um, a biography that he wrote um, um, about Dr. King. The title of that biography is Crusader Without Violence. Uh, it's the first biography written of Dr. King, and it was literally written on our campus. 
Um, and it was one of two, or it is one of two biographies that was written while Dr. King was alive. Wow, that's really cool and uh, definitely appropriate for the weekend uh, to bring that up as well. I did not know that. Uh, and it's, yeah, that's that's a really fascinating kind of connection in, in terms of how that organizing started. And I wanted to ask you a little bit if if you could share some of your thoughts about maybe what's unique or what's uh, different about organizing at the HBCU environment. Um, because I, I imagine... Uh, there are some unique aspects to being at a HBCU compared to like a regular university, so to speak. Um, and then there are, of course, some of the same struggles that workers face everywhere, uh, particularly at the at the university level. So could you talk a little bit about that experience of, of the HBCU organizing? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of people believe that um, um, Historically, black colleges and universities are are sort of are off base, or I should say um, um, that it's very difficult to organize on these campuses, and it's really not. Um, it is difficult, but it's difficult to organize any campus. Right. Um, but the first, the first higher education affiliate. Uh, for the AFT is Howard University, and that was back in the 1940s. Um, and, and so uh, unions have been successful in organizing some of the more well-known um, historically Black colleges and universities, such as Howard University, such as Wilberforce, um, such as um, um, Delaware um, State, um, and so um, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 101 HBCUs. Um, the vast majority of them are not organized. Uh, a number of them are private. Um, so that presents another challenge. Um, right. But um, I, I think um, organizations, or I should say unions like um, the AFT, um, I think they've we have taken a different um, sort of um, tack um, in terms of, of whether or not we can be successful in organizing HBCUs. Certainly, I think there's an interest on these campuses um, uh, to be uh, uh, represented. Um, uh, and, and so I, I, I think we're going to see more efforts um, in the future. Um, to to organize these campuses. But as I said, um, the history of organizing um, Black colleges um, goes back to the turn of the 20th century. Right, right. And and I think, you know, there's a couple of things I, I, I wanted to mention there. Um, you know, I worked for the Alabama Education Association for several years. And in that capacity, I got to know quite a few workers at Alabama A&M University, uh, your big rival uh, here in Huntsville. And, um, you know, they were experiencing a lot of issues uh, and had right. very little representation or recourse. And uh, it really spoke to me about the need for higher ed organizing. And so I think that there's a big potential with AFT uh, 
Mm-hmm. You know, so if anyone from AFT National is listening, uh, I definitely think uh, Alabama is ripe for organizing, uh, both at the higher ed level and at the K-12 level, because, um, frankly, there's a lot of educators who, whose voices are not being heard and, and, and protections that are not in place that really should be. Um, and the other thing that struck me is that when I talked with some of these workers Obviously, they came from various backgrounds. Uh, racially, there was white workers. There were, you know, immigrant workers from Asia, from Africa, uh, and then there were black workers from Alabama. And in that that group in particular, seemed to it, it, it seemed to sting more. It seemed to be more personal and really hurt when their university did them wrong, um, mm-hmm. because. I imagine that most of the people who work at HBCUs do so because they have a story similar to yours, right? They went to an HBCU. It gave them and their family opportunities that they maybe wouldn't have had otherwise. They have a deep love for the institution. Uh, And so that is always a difficult thing when you have this love and this cultural affiliation with an institution that is also your employer and may be mistreating you, uh, you and your, your siblings. So... Uh, yeah, those are just a couple of the things that, that came to mind about that. And I think it's uh, uh, it's very impressive that you've been able to to lead up the AFT's efforts here in the state at the higher ed level uh, at Alabama State. And uh, so, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, I did want to ask you, because of your background and, and because of your uh, experience as a history professor, the Alabama legislature is talking about uh, yet again – banning what they call critical race theory. Um, and in this yeah. case, now they're calling it divisive concepts, right? Right. So right. I'm curious as a, you know, as a history professor, as someone who, you know, is also a worker, right? What What are some of your thoughts about this push uh, from Alabama Republicans to to interfere in the classroom? Well, I, I, I think for the proponents of, of, that bill, the divisive issues uh, bill, um, they're advocating, um, well, if that bill is successful, it, it, it would, it would suggest that no one could talk about Alabama history. Um, because if one is, um, sincere about, the history of Alabama. Um, there is no way to talk about the history of Alabama without talking about the ways in which, the many ways in which race um, conflates that history. Um, and, and so, um, I mean, I sort of, I believe I understand the impulses of, of, of as I said, those prop- uh, proponents of, of CRT. Um, um, who, uh, or I should say, opponents of CRT. Um, 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 it's hard to talk about um, um, the enslavement of, uh, or an enslavement. It's hard to talk about um, what happened to immigrants in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, it's 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 difficult to talk about what ha- happened to indigenous people in our country, the forced migration 
of 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 native art um, 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 nation um, to um, the, the 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 West. Um, um, these are difficult subjects, but I think these are difficult subjects that we have to tackle or we have to broach. Um, and so, uh, I, as I said, I think I understand the impulse of why people don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about it because they don't want to be reminded of of this history. We, right. you know, I mean, you can't walk. Um, you can't walk in um, anywhere, or I should say there are very few places that one could walk in downtown Montgomery uh, and not be reminded of this history. So what are we going to do? Are we going to remove all the statutes? Are we going to remove all the monuments? I mean, we would even have to remove the first White House of the Confederacy. I mean, I mean, uh, and so um, I think at least my duty as an educator and my duty as a historian um, is to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, to the best mm. of my ability. And I, I'm not saying there's one um, um, truth, um, um, but we have to have these, these conversations. And to be quite honest, one of the reasons why I wanted to live in the South and teach in the South it's because of the way in which um, um, these topics resonate in the South differently than they resonate in other parts of the country, particularly in, in northern Indiana, where I grew up. Um, um, so the idea that um, people would still have um, uh, or would still have or would still question the efficacy of the uh, Confederate States of America or the government of the Confederate States of America. Um, the fact that, um, you know, we would still question whether or not the, um, the Confederate battle flags uh, represent um, 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 slavery. Of course they do. I mean, um, um, I, I found it amusing, but not really surprising that presidential candidate and former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, um, had a difficult time, um, except, or I should say, uh, admitting that, um, that, uh, that, that the Civil War had anything to do with slavery. Of course right. it did. Right. Um, you know, all one has to do is to read um, Alexander Stevens' um, so-called um, cornerstone speech, the speech he gave in, in um, uh, Savannah, Georgia, um, where he talked about the cornerstone of the new Confederate government was enslavement. Um, and, and so it was clear um, that enslavement um, um, was the main reason for the Civil War, I should say, or the main reason for the Southern states that succeeded from the Union uh, fought in the Civil War. Um, right. and, and because, you know, enslavement was the bread and butter of the Confederate um, um, uh, economy. Um, 
um, all one has some my favorite antebellum cities, or two of my favorite antebellum cities are Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. And if one visits those two cities, and if any of your listeners have not visited those two cities, I would strongly urge them to. Because, you know, when you go to, or when you visit Charleston, South Carolina, or Savannah, Georgia, I don't have to remind you about the wealth that slavery produced. You can see it with your, with your own eyes. Oh, yeah. Um, um, and so it's clear. Um, people were able to live like kings and queens um, off of the free labor of, 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 of Blacks um, um, in this country. And, and so those people who do not want to talk about these topics because they find them divis- divisive, of course they are divisive, um, but they're, they're also um, accurate. Uh, um, and, and so, yeah, I um, mean, well, you can't I, hide truth. I right. mean, I guess you can try, no. but, you know, the, the facts are what they are. And, and, you know, this is reality and reality sometimes is divisive and reality can be, you know, difficult to process. But this is what right. happened. And, um, you know, and it's it's very um, insulting, I think, to everyone involved, frankly, Uh the idea that we can't have authentic conversations about the realities of our history, uh, because that's how we learn. I mean, that's how right. we move forward. Uh, it, it, yeah, right. go ahead, Jacob. Yeah, well, I I just wanted to say that that you know you mentioning that uh, about Nikki Haley, it it was it, it was shocking to me too. Or well, I mean, it the that that people would still try to peddle you know some of this lost cause kind of stuff the idea that uh the civil war was not about slavery or or perhaps uh uh you know um on the periphery it was about slavery but it was about these bigger mm-hmm. questions of you know states rights and and how it how you know right. deep the government is going to be entrenched in our lives you know this is if we teach the history people will understand that this was a myth that was purposely embedded in Southern schools by uh, the uh, Daughters of the Confederacy. And, and, and this the is sons not, of Confederate veterans. Right, right, the Sons of Confederate veterans, the uh, uh, Daughters mm-hmm. of the Confederacy. This is not the organic understanding that arose immediately after the Civil War was over. That It happened, this understanding that became popular among white Southerners, happened after redemption. After the fall mm-hmm. of Reconstruction, when white supremacy mm-hmm. reasserted itself in the in in the mm-hmm. Southern United States, and it, it, like you said, there's just nothing that race and racism and Jim Crowism uh, does not affect. When you're talking mm-hmm. about, I mean, really, in the entire United States, you know, I think that that some folks in the North kind of see themselves as outside of. America's racial history, but that, I mean, that's clearly not the case, but particularly in the South, I was talking about, um, you know, the, the, uh, why is it, somebody asked me, uh, that, that unions have not been able to take as much a hold in the South as they have in, uh, the North and the West, and it is explicitly because of, uh, racism. If you take a look at some, if you read organize about organizing campaigns in Alabama, for instance, right. uh, you know, right. the there where campaigns tried to uh, ignore the color line and organize right. interracially, they right. were brutally 
repressed right. and right. Uh, destroyed by the state. And then mm -hmm. where they tried to respect the color line, respect, quote unquote, and organize black folks and white folks separately, then obviously this division was bad for workers and the black workers would scab on the white workers and the white workers would scab on the black workers and then all to the benefit of the boss, right? I mean, it's all race permeates everything. And, you know, folks, like folks have to understand that. Yeah. Right. I, you know, a lot of people don't know that when the 90, approximately 90 um, boycott leaders were indicted um, in 1956, Dr. King was the only one that stood trial um, and was convicted. He was convicted of a 1920 anti-boycott law. A lot of people believe that that law uh, was written specifically um, for um, an event or an action like the Montgomery bus boycott, it was actually an anti-union law mm. um, that Dr. King was convicted of. Um, and right. so this is the reason why attorney Fred Gray did not want people to refer to the Montgomery boycott as a boycott. He wanted um, um, people to refer to the Montgomery boycott as a protest mm. um, because he knew if they advocated a boycott that they would be in violation of this 1920 law. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, well, I shouldn't say it's hard, but we have to unpack all this history. And, you know, um, the point you made about the North is absolutely correct. Um, the Constitution of the United States was a pro-slavery document. Right. Um, the Three-Fifths Clause, uh, mm -hmm. the Fugitive Clause. I mean, those were uh, uh, pro-slavery measures. This, this whole idea that um, the Northern delegates to, in the Constitutional Convention did not want to send any signals that they were opposed or, do, or that they would do anything to oppose um, enslavement in the, in the South. Um, and so, right. uh, you know, the compromise was, it was a compromise. Um, you know, just like we know that Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation affected um, those states in rebellion against the Union, where there was a problem with Lincoln um, um, signing a proclamation, which was equivalent to an executive order, freeing those states in rebellion against the Union. He was not the president of those states in rebellion against the Union. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there are all kinds of ways in which people were vexed and, and, and conflicted um, on this, this, this topic of enslavement. Right? Well, and, you know, were uh, the, I, I think that, that some on the right have whipped themselves into such a frenzy about this, you know, this idea that, that people would teach history um, and, and the fact that, that you know, race is, is a pretty central kind of theme uh, in, in American history. Um, they've whipped themselves into such a frenzy that they are they are now even moving backwards from where the right began or, or where the right had, had kind of landed uh, post yeah. Reagan. You know, Reagan was yeah. the one that signed MLK Day. Yeah. And yeah. and they are and, and there are some elements that are that are no longer on the fringe that have yeah. really radicalized themselves into being yeah. against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, you yeah. know, I mean, well, I, you may not be a, a, you, you may not be familiar with 
this college right wing organization, Turning Points USA. Um, but but it's a, a fairly prominent kind of organization on the right that that tasks mm-hmm. itself with organizing right wing students on college campuses. And its leader yeah. kind of de facto is Charlie Kirk. And he has on Monday coming up uh, supposedly this big expose exposing the real mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. And he's going to talk about mm-hmm. how Martin Luther King was this mm-hmm. radical anti-American mm-hmm. communist activist mm-hmm. and all that's bad. And, and we actually mm-hmm. shouldn't have signed the Civil Rights uh, the Civil Rights Act. I mean, this uh, on, mm-hmm. you know, he is a mainstream conservative figure mm-hmm. openly saying we should not have signed the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It is. You know, you know, it, 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 and so, you know, I don't want to get too far into weeds with this, <laughs> but, you know, this whole thing about race and racism and, and it is, you know, one cannot deny or one can't deny, but um, the truth is the truth. The whole idea of race was created um, to uh, marginalize and to exploit um, certain people. And so um, in in our country, um, this notion of race, you know, the, the, the idea of the one-eighth rule um, that Louisiana had, anybody that possessed one-eighth Negro blood was classified as a Negro. Well, you know, we know in the Plessy decision that, um, uh, or I should say, we know that the Plessy decision challenged that because Homer Plessy um, did not look like a Negro. Most people did not recognize him as a Negro. And even the Supreme Court itself, in its majority opinion, wrote that Homer Plessy's, quote, Negroness was not discernible in him. In other words, end quote. Uh, in other words, one could look at Homer Plessy and not know he was a Negro. So, you know, again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but we know that that race is fictive. White folks ain't white because they're white. Black folks aren't black because they're black. But we know that there are meanings that are posited into these words, uh, black and white, that that are historic, that... Um, that are unique in some regard to our very country. Um, And the fact that the last state in the United States to remove an anti-miscegenation law from its its constitution was our state, Alabama. And we Mm -hmm. did so in 2000. Um, So, you know... Well, and, you know, you say that, I actually remember my my parents got married in 88. And they had a, they had a black woman in their ceremony. My parents are both white, you know. I think obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, they had a black woman in their ceremony, and that was like a controversy. Uh, and uh, after their marriage, the church actually changed its rules around who the church would marry to exclude people that were not as a, a part of the church, quote unquote. Like my mom grew up at wow. that church, but she was no longer part of that church. Um, wow. And so they changed the rules after my parents got married. And wow. my parents are not, you yeah. know, they're not like radical, you know, uh, progressive right. activists. You know, they're just like, right. they were just kind of normal people. And they, and my mom right. had a black friend. Right. And so she was right. in her wedding and that was apparently right. very controversial. Right. So, well, right. Anyway, Dr. Moten, yeah. I know you, you got to run. <laughs> um, I wanted to just give you the final opportunity to speak on uh kind of what you see ahead with 2024 and the alabama labor movement if you have any sort of final thoughts on um 
the task ahead and, and what you see coming? Well, I, I'm a witness to what the positive impact of being a, a, a member of a union um, can have on workers. As I said, my dad was a union member. Um, most of the adults that I knew growing up um, were union members because they worked in the steel mills or they worked for one of the auto plants. Um, um, it is not um, hyperbole um, to say that the unions built the middle class. Mm. Um, um, and, you know, I, I cringe when I hear um, people uh, brag about how good our economy is. Um, well, I can take you to plenty of places, and you know these places, um, where the economy is not so good. Um, my hometown, Gary, Indiana, is one of those places. Um, it wasn't that place when I grew up there, but it is that place now. Right. And it's largely because of the disappearance of labor jobs, of union jobs. Um, right. They went south. They went south of the border. They went um, um, to um, uh, um, places like Korea. Um, and, and so I, I think... Um, you know, the the fight for the middle class is the fight for uh, um, union um, um, membership, um, um, union wages, um, and uh, I, I I just think that um, we have to uh, continue to hold um, um, industries. Um, or I should say the, 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 the magnets of these industries, um, we have to hold their feet to the fire. Um, um, you know, when Booker T. Washington was the president of, of Tuskegee Institute before it became Tuskegee University, he had some of the wealthiest industrialists on his board of trustees. Um, people like Andrew Carnegie, people like Julius Rosenwald, um, people like Alfred Baldwin. Um, um, and, you know, they shared their wealth, um, Julius Rosenwald and the Rosenwald schools, Andrew Carnegie and um, the construction of free public libraries across the country. We don't see that as much with this new industrial class of, of or I should say this, um, the, the extremely wealthy that we, um, um, business uh, people that we have in our country today. Um, and so I think, you know, again, it's important to remind people that um, the history that we're experiencing now um, has not always been our history, um, That's right. um, and you know, and, and so um, you know, people deserve um, they just they they deserve equal opportunities. Um, you know what's happening in terms of public education, uh, or I should say, uh, higher education, um, where students um, now are graduating. Um, you know, some as many um, um, with this, with student debt that 
that uh, amounts to six figures. Um, that's a terrible uh, burden to place on a young college graduate. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I think we have to be more sensitive um, to um, such, you know, to the circumstances that we are placing the next generation um, um, in. And I think unions um, have a role to play um, in that. And I certainly um, think unions will um, 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 take up um, that challenge. Professor Moten, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Okay. All right. A break. We're going to be right back, and we're going to break down the news about the UAW at Mercedes in Alabama. Stay tuned. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower-than-average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 7452. 
Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our Climate Protection Project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Campus. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And we've got a lot of stuff to get to. So let's jump right into it. The United Auto Workers have announced that they have reached 30% card signed at the Mercedes uh, manufacturing plant in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, with their now signature flashy videos. So we're going to go ahead and play that flashy video for you because uh, it's always really good. Play, let's play this clip for him, Adam. 30 years ago, Mercedes-Benz turned a 1,000 acres of forests and fields into Alabama's first auto plant. Some people doubted that Alabama could build a world-class car. We proved them wrong. And we've been growing ever since, making more and more cars and more and more money for Mercedes. We made history. And blazed a new trail for the auto industry in Alabama. And we're about to make history again. For three decades, Mercedes has pulled in billions in profit. Off the millions of cars we've built. Mercedes executive pay goes up. While Alabama auto workers fall further behind. The brand may be foreign, but the labor is American. And American workers don't just roll over and take what we're given. People say we do things a little bit different down here in Alabama. And Alabama is a special place. But in those early mornings, we still punch the clock. In those hot summer nights, the line is still running. 
And just like everywhere else, American non-union auto workers are getting a raw deal. That's why over 1,500 of us at Mercedes in Alabama have signed union cards. And are joining the United Auto Workers. For the last 30 years, we built this plant from the ground up. This is our defining moment. It's time to stand up. It's time to stand up for, for our, our families, families, for our co-workers, for, our co -workers, for, for Alabama. Alabama. As United Auto Workers. So there we go. Uh, great video, as always. Um, really kind of laying out some of the picture of Alabama's auto industry and, you know, reminding people of the fact that it's the workers who are doing this and uh, the workers who are creating these record profits for the auto industry and the workers who are being left behind. We're going to put some numbers to that, how they're being left behind here in just a second. But um, Kay Ivey immediately responded. I mean, it was so quick that clearly somebody in her office uh, had written this up and it was ready to go as soon as the announcement dropped because I think it came out within the hour, uh, this uh, this op-ed that she wrote uh, that she put on the uh, Alabama Department of Commerce's website. So using our taxpayer dollars uh, to attack uh, her own constituents, our fellow workers here in Alabama. And so we figured uh, we should respond to that um, because it's, uh, you know, people should really take offense to our politicians attacking us with our tax dollars. Uh, people should really take offense to that. So here's what she said. September 30th, 1993 marked a watershed moment in Alabama history. Uh, that is the day. Mercedes-Benz went against the grain and chose our state to be the home of their first U.S. manufacturing facility. It was a decision that changed the future of our state like no one could have imagined. Fast forward more than 30 years to January 2024, and Alabama is a top five automotive manufacturing state with five world-class original equipment manufacturers. Mercedes-Benz, Honda, Hyundai, Toyota, and Mazda. These manufacturers are key drivers of our economy, but who drives their success? The answer is nearly 50,000 hardworking Alabamians in the automotive manufacturing sector. And that's exactly right. And she goes on to ignore that in the latter part of her op-ed. The men and, uh, and she continues, the men and women who work in Alabama OEM facilities and about 150 supporting supplier employers are highly skilled and highly paid. Is that right? Yeah. So, skirt, we're going to stop there for a second um, and analyze that. Because, um, you know, there's an extent to which that is true, um, but to the extent that it is true, to the extent that it is true that you can say Alabama's auto workers are highly paid, to whatever extent that is true, that is entirely because of advancements that the UAW made, the United Auto Workers made, in auto manufacturing plants in the rest of the United States. You should read a history book, folks. Read a history book about the history of the automotive sector. And if you do that, you will see that before the organization of America's auto industry, auto jobs were itinerant. 
itinerant, meaning not consistent. They were not jobs that you could go to as a career and stay there for your entire life and be able to retire with dignity. They were not a place that you could go to and expect to come home unmaimed and uninjured at the end of the day. They were not a place that you could go to and expect respect and dignity on the job. Auto jobs were itinerant. The turnover rate matched or even beat Amazon's, for example. The pay was low. The pay was inconsistent. You could go in one day and make a totally different rate than you did the day before. It was unsafe. You should read some of the uh, uh, government safety reports of the auto industry before its organization. There was no retirement plan. All Everything that you can imagine about the auto industry that is good for workers today is because of the United Auto Workers. Okay? But... Even to the extent that it is true that Alabama's auto workers are quote-unquote highly paid, that is becoming less and less true. Just since 2002, Alabama's auto workers make 11% less than they did in 2002. If you were an auto worker in 2002, you earned an average of $72,000. That is about $25,000 more than what the average worker earned in the state economy that year, which was $47,000 and $17,000 more than what the average manufacturing worker earned, which was $55,000. Okay, so I'm reading this from Alabama Arises report on Alabama's auto industry. It's very interesting. You should all read it. Google Alabama Arise auto report. So, you know... It is worth mentioning that in the early years of Alabama's auto industry, the auto industry workers were paid a significant wage premium compared to the rest of the economy, not compared to auto workers in the rest of the United States, compared to workers in the rest of the economy. Yet, by 2019, the auto worker wage premium had shriveled, reading from the report again. As the auto industry's wages declined and other industries began to pay more, in 2019, Alabama's auto workers earned $64,000, just $2,600 more than the average manufacturing worker in the state. Even more troubling, these missing wages came at a time when Alabama's auto industry continued to experience record profitability. In 2019, Alabama's five biggest auto manufacturers, Honda, Mercedes, Hyundai, Toyota, and Mazda together earned more than $127 billion in profits globally. Given profits of this magnitude, it seems reasonable to ask why automakers didn't pay Alabama workers at least, at least what they were making 20 years before. And what would that be? That would amount to $350 million more in the pockets of Alabama's auto workers. If Alabama's auto workers were paid in 2019 the same that they were paid in 2002 when adjusted for inflation, that would be $350 million more dollars in Alabama's auto workers' pockets. Instead, that $350 million has been stolen from our economy and lining the pockets 
of out-of-state investors. In, in these cases, Honda, Mercedes, Hyundai, Toyota, Mazda, out-of-country investors, right? That's who's profiting. That's who's taking that $350 million. People, don't, people that don't even live in this country. But that $350 million in missing wages is a comparative drop in the bucket with profits like those. Paying Alabama's auto workers the same rate they made in 2002 would have equated to less than 0.3% of these companies' profits, not 0.3% of their operating revenue of the profits. Zero point, not even just a fraction of 1% is how much it would have cost to pay Alabama's auto workers in 2019 the same that they made in 2002. But... And this is, this is really kind of the important thing, one of the most important things about this report. Those numbers do not help you fully appreciate what the newest workers here are going through. Because like in the UAW plants across the country, the non-union plants in Alabama have largely implemented tiered compensation systems. So I'm going back to the report now. Moreover, interviewees at Mercedes noted that auto workers in the second tier face caps on their yearly wages. These caps are such that their maximum hourly pay rate is roughly 80% of the top rate earned by workers hired before the multi-tier systems implementation. A 20% pay cut for the newest employees. Even more troubling, temporary workers can earn less than half a 50% pay cut for doing the same job. Those Wages and those conditions are much more reflective of what people can expect going into the Alabama's auto industry today. 20 to 50% pay cuts from the average. Temporary work, itinerant work, you'll remember. What happened before the UAW is coming back. Okay, so we left off, Kay Ivey said, highly skilled and highly paid. That is becoming less and less true, but to the extent it is true, it is because of the union, the United Auto Workers. Going back to what she said to her uh, to her op-ed, she said, Alabama has become a national leader in automotive manufacturing, and all this was achieved without a unionized workforce. In other words, our success has been homegrown, done the Alabama way. Unfortunately, the Alabama model for economic success. Is un and Well, I'll just say done the Alabama way. It is also worth noting that Alabama has a history of unionization. A, his a very proud history of unionization. We absolutely the highest do. In, uh, the highest in the Southeast. Currently and throughout history, Alabama's had the highest unionization rate in the Southeast. And in fact, the UMWA has claimed that in Walker County, due to the United Mine Workers organizing efforts, that Walker County was the highest union-dense county in the entire country. At one so, point, uh, absolutely. And and I got to say, yeah, I, I wanted to stop there for, for that point. Exactly. It is our heritage to organize, to act like this is, you know, something foreign to Alabama it is ahistorical. Um, also, the model for economic success, whose success? Right. The state of Alabama is one of the worst places to be a working class person in the entire developed world by any metric, by any right. metric, rank at or near the bottom on every single aspect of a quality of life. 
right? So what kind of economic success is she talking about? And, you know, the model she's describing where we hand over the public treasury to these out-of-state corporations and promise them a non-union workforce that they could pay less than other workers, right? That they can mistreat more than other workers with no recourse, right? Right. We promise them that they're free to extract our natural resources. Don't worry, wink, wink. There won't be any environmental right. regulators. No. Right. So that's yeah, the yeah. Well, hold hold on to that for just a second. Put a pin in that. Put a pin in that. That we are giving billions of dollars to out of state companies to get them to come here. Out of state. Remember those words. Okay. Unfortunately, back to her article, unfortunately, the Alabama model for economic success is under attack. A national labor union, the United Automotive Workers, UAW, is ramping up efforts to target non-union automakers throughout the United States, including ours here in Alabama. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. These are out-of-state special interest groups. The goal of this woman to say that the United Auto Workers is an out-of-state special interest group when she is fighting on behalf of foreign, out-of-country special interest groups to be able to more easily exploit her constituents. These are out-of-state special interest groups and their special interests do not include Alabama or the men and women earning a career in Alabama's automotive industry. Oh, really? So that's, that's why people are signing up? Right. They're like, oh, well, they don't actually want me to have a good career, but I'm going to sign up anyway. They don't want me to have a good career, but um, wait, what's this news about Ford and uh, right. Chevrolet workers? They, they're they getting a, quite a pay raise. That looks like a good career. I don't know. Yeah. As governor, my special interest is the well-being of our great state and each of the five million Alabamians who live here who have an opportunity to succeed here and can be proud to raise a family here. I will always stand strong for our hardworking men and women as well as our world-class employers. When Alabamians are successful, our state is is successful. Obviously, coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama, do not factor into her special interest for the well-being of each of the five million Alabamians because she used tax dollars to escort scabs across the picket line, scabs who were, by and large, out-of-state scabs who were recruited from West Virginia and Kentucky and uh, Georgia and all these other places out-of-state to come and take her constituents' jobs for less money without union protections. She says, Alabama has a proud industrial past. Alabama is a leader in innovation and opportunity. Again, we point to the unionized past of Alabama. She rounds out by saying Alabama embraced a watershed moment in 1993, and we may soon face another watershed moment. Uh, When the UAW asked nearly 50,000 Alabamians, do you want continued opportunity and success the Alabama way, or do you want out-of-state special interests telling Alabama how to do business? For me, the choice is clear. I stand by our proven track record of success. That is why I will always proudly support the great Alabama employers and the best employees in the world. So, uh, Alabamians work harder than anyone. We make the best automobiles in the world, and we must not let the UAW tell us differently. Obviously, the UAW does not want to tell you differently. And the question, do you want continued opportunity and success the Alabama way, or do you want out-of-state special interest telling Alabama how to do business? That is a false choice. The question is not that. The question is, 
Do you want to continue to be at the whim, total whim of your employer with no say over your working conditions, or do you want to take some control? That's the question. Right. Because it's not the out-of-state special interests who are going to be voting on the contracts that Alabama workers have to labor under. When Alabama workers unionize at Mercedes, it will be Alabama Mercedes workers who vote on the contract that they have to work under. It will be them who negotiate the contract that they have to work under. Instead, what we currently have is out-of-country special interests dictating with total oligarchic control the conditions of our employment. I've got a little bit more that I want to say about that, but we are coming up on, well... Yeah, we are coming up on time, and so we'll have to do a part two of our reaction to Governor Kay Ivey and Alabama politicians in terms of the UAW drive at Mercedes. Yeah. Do you want to do that in overtime, or do you want to save that for next Saturday? I don't know. We'll talk about that in the break. But yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to uh, cut it short, and, and we'll either um, finish up in the second half of the show or next week. But um, we're gonna go ahead and head off of the radio. We do have some good stuff in the second half of the show. Oh yeah, busy. Uh, whether or not we get to the UAW, uh, we're gonna be reacting to some uh, return to office uh, announcements that were very tone deaf. Uh, we're gonna be reacting to a, a YouTube streamer talking about how working class uh, people do not make good politicians, how we can't represent ourselves. We don't have the requisite skills. We're going to be talking about college football players and unionization, all that and more. So make sure you stay tuned. Facebook, YouTube, all at the Valley Labor Report to keep watching after we uh, wrap up on the radio. Adam, you had a couple of plugs. Yeah, real quick, labornotes.org slash events. They have race and labor and uh, investigating grievances happening uh, this month. Highly check, recommend you check that out. Uh, I'm working with Alabama Rise to host an advocacy training January 29th at the downtown Huntsville Library. That's going to be 530 to 7 p.m. I'm going to do a regional issue preview on Zoom on Wednesday, January 24th at 12 o'clock. Alabama Rise has a virtual action briefing the night before the legislative session starts on February 5th at 6 o'clock. So that's a good legislative preview. You don't want to miss that. Uh, and I was on America's Workforce uh, to start the week, talking a little IATSE, talking Alabama Rise, talking uh, the Valley Labor Report, and about uh, the big news in Alabama uh regarding convict lease labor and the massive lawsuit uh, that is underway there. Uh, so those were some of my plugs. Um, I definitely recommend you reach out if you have any questions or you're interested in uh, attending anything locally. Holler at me. Yep, absolutely. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us on the radio. Stay tuned. Facebook, YouTube, The Valley Labor Report. Otherwise, we will see you next week.